0: As I said, I'm stepping up for Jonathan, and so the text will not be his. We will not be continuing in First in, in John chapter one as he has been. So I would have you turn uh, to Psalm 131, which in the pew Bibles is on page 614, Psalm 131. And um, the I will get back to Colossians. I know uh, once again. Seems an un- unexpected break, but um I'd taken the week off and I did not want to hurry the next part of Colossians um, and prepare it for less less than a half before. And and I want you to have Psalm 131 in your pocket. It's it's short. Um you can memorize this, and there's a height. To it. It's an interesting grandeur and there's a tenderness to it. And uh, I want this for you. Here, Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Pray with me. Father, yet again, we ask that you would. Proclaim your word, that we would hear the word of God, that your written word would be preached understandably, touchingly, that you would do with us all that you promise the Spirit to do. Oh, Spirit, that you would give to us what belongs to our Savior, what He has earned up and treasured up for us. Praying His name. Amen. Christian, here your king has come and conquered you are called to confidence and contentment christians here you can live sanely by trust in king jesus in psalm 131 king david speaks exactly as Jesus actually lived. David was the anointed king of Israel. Jesus is the anointed king of all creation. This is why Jesus has the title Christ. That is not his last name. It's the Greek word for anointed. He is Jesus the anointed. The Hebrew term was Masek. And it came into English as Messiah. He is not just a king. He is anointed. He's not just honored with oil. He is set apart by God for God's purposes with his people. Now there are different kinds of kings. Tyrannical kings that rule without limit. Constitutional monarchs like the long line of English kings. Figureheads like Queen Elizabeth of the present. Kings rule nations with more or less influence over populations. God's anointed king is unique. He is the focus of God's covenant, God's promises and plans for His people. What happens between God and His anointed king is what happens between God and His people. This link between living God, anointed king, and God's people, that's why Jesus was like a long trumpet blast in first century Palestine. He didn't just stir up excitement. He sort of questions and expectations. Is he who he seems to be? David's actual descendants still live among us, but there hasn't been a Davidic king for centuries. Is Jesus the king? Is he the Messiah? Does this mean that God is doing something new? Something like David. David said that God would do a greater thing through David's greater son is God about to do? All this talk of kings and anointing and authority may seem out of left field to you. Isn't this a psalm about being humble, uh, not proud, instead being calm and quiet? Isn't this more psychological than political? What does a quiet heart have to do with kings, laws and justice and wars and pomp and circumstance? As God deals with the anointed king, so he deals with his people. David rejects a proud heart for the quietness of a well-fed child. And for that reason, Israel is exhorted to hope in Yahweh. If it makes sense for God's king, it makes sense for God's people. If our king walks in the way of humility, then we can expect God's good care, no matter how lowly or unimportant we are. If our king reveals to us a God who takes care of the lowly, like a mirror shows the sun, if our God, God gives a king like this, who trusts God's promises and hangs on steadfast love, if this is our king and this is our God, then Christians hear. You can live sanely by faith in Christ. We live in a pitiably craving and anxious time. Confidence and contentment are two of the most popular carrots that keep people running from that stick behind them. Counseling and coaches and self-help manuals offer resources and practices to pursue these things. People want confidence and contentment. They want assurance and abundance. They want whatever they ask for. They want whatever they can get. There is nothing like contentment and confidence. There is nothing, nothing like craving and anxiety to drive you after contentment and confidence. So we, we just need to make the right psychological and dietary and political and social changes to soak up all our neediness and our fretfulness. If we fix everything, everything will be all right. Um, how is this grand mindfulness project going, do you think? Christians, here, you can live sanely by faith in Christ Jesus your king delivers you from the craving and anxiety that is our cultural creed. The Lord Jesus lived and died like that winged child with his mother. And he gives you the same reason. That's right. You can live with sanity and you can die with satisfaction. The Lord Jesus achieved your salvation and he gives you a solid confidence and contentment. God's embrace of you and God's future for you. I, I'm not telling everyone to go after meds and I'm not denying the well-being enhancement of physical exercise and a wholesome diet. I'm saying that faith in Christ is your deep. Christian, here, your king has come and conquered. And you are called to confidence and contentment. Now, Psalm 31 is short. It really is short enough to carry in your pocket. It's short short enough to be yours. It's short enough for you to memorize. Roll over in your mind, on your tongue. In verse 1, David first models a negative posture about our recognition and our restraint. In verse two, he models a positive posture about a provision and a presence. Verse 3 is a concluding exhortation about today and tomorrow and decades and really about generations. First, like David you must recognize yourself, your status and your limits. Like David, you must restrain yourself. You're demanding and you're overreaching. Second, like David, you must rest on God's foundational provision and rest in his fond presence. Third, like your king, make this your way of life. This is living by faith. King David certainly wavered and played the fool. That points his craving and anxiety blazed ugly, but his sinfulness does not make the psalm a lie. King Jesus did not waver; he lived and died in this confidence and contentment. This is not about psychological repression, or religious hypnotism. This calming and quieting of the soul is humanity whole and wholesome. Jesus Christ calmed and quieted his soul, and he delivered it up with his blood for us. We delight in the God who became man for our salvation, your glory is to become like him, to live like him, to see and understand the most beautiful thing, the work that is your salvation, and to imitate it. to become a copy of what is your great hope, your great, great, heart-touching, sweet love the Lord Jesus, the Savior. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. David speaks of his heart and his eyes. They are not lifted, not raised. He is not haughty inwardly in his meditation. He is not demanding outwardly in his disposition. He does not stand entitled before God. He does not live like the Lord of his own life. He recognizes his status. He is God's king. He's God's servant. He is God's. God gives to him. God does not take his orders. God loves him. God does not obey him. David describes this as a negative posture, a recognition of his true status, restraining his pride. He restrains his pride because, like every believer, sin continues with him. Christian, think of the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Lowly, obedient, dependent, most honorable. Aspire. And step down to this, the way David demonstrates. Step down again and again. Step down when you are vexed and sullen. Christians here, you can live sanely by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. (laughs) David's recognition goes further and his restraint becomes more concrete. As God's servant and God's creature he recognizes that much of his life is beyond his reach. He looks at the world and recognizes that it exceeds his limits. In the ordinary experience of life, his hands and his heart simply aren't big enough. He lives in God's world. And he is the servant, not the Lord. The things that are too great, those are Objects and events and situations beyond your control and even beyond your influence. You can't do anything about X, Y, or Z. It is too great for you. The things that are too marvelous, those are the reasons and purposes and designs and working of God's power that exceed your understanding. There is much you do not understand and cannot understand. The most you can do is make silly guesses and ignorant assertions. The world is full of God's glory. You and I live in the world, but the world is God's providence. What does David mean by I do not occupy myself with these things? What is the restraint here? He means that he doesn't make these things his business. He doesn't go at them like he has the power or the wisdom required. Here's an image. If it's a knot that he cannot untie, he doesn't take scissors to it. Another image. If it's a game, he can't win. He doesn't despise the other player as a cheat. If God gives him a puzzle he cannot solve, he does not work at it carefully and thoughtfully and conclude that God makes no sense. Those are images. So let's take an example from David's life in the book of 1 Samuel. God anointed David as king, but Saul was anointed first, and he won't give way to David. David has to flee for his life. David spends years hiding. He is king, but he cannot reign. This situation is too great for him. Saul hunts for him, and David scurries around the wilderness, narrowly escaping repeatedly. On more than one occasion, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. That would cut the knot in two. Then he could reign, but David refuses. He recognizes that killing God's anointed is sacrilege. He is set apart by God. God alone has the authority to touch him. The situation is too great for him. It's beyond his status. As God's servant. He cannot rid himself of Saul. He doesn't have the authority. He can't do anything about it. Even when he has a spear in his hand. And Saul is sleeping at his feet. It's beyond him. He can shock Saul to his senses. His refusal to kill Saul. It brings the two of them face to face. At a safe distance. And Saul confesses that David is in the right, that David is God's chosen. Oh, David is eloquent. David speaks directly. And he brings Saul to regret. He influences Saul to give up the chase. But only for a time. And, Paul does, and Saul does not step aside. David can do a lot of things. And God protects David. David is unable to solve the problem. It is clearly too great for him. David must simply be faithful in his own business and let God deal with Saul as his business. How did David do that? How did he continue through those years? He was obedient. He didn't take those scissors to the knot. How did he not nurture a bitterness towards God? How did he not drift into living as if as God were unreliable and worthy of his devotion? How did he live in the conundrum, perhaps confusion at times, of being God's anointed and hiding as an outlaw for something like a decade? How do you chew on this and call God's inscrutable providence marvelous, even too marvelous for me is recognizing your status before God and the limits of your ability enough to restrain your heart from sullenness and your hands from defiance. No. That is not enough. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The negative posture of verse 1 has a matching positive posture. In verse 2, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Notice, just like the recognition and restraint, this state of calm is cultivated. It's not automatic. Not like breathing, more like eating, regular, repeated, not something that happens to you. The recognition and restraint, our rejection of pride from our heart and conduct, a necessary activity because sin continues with every believer. So too, this this calming, this quieting of the soul is the business of everyday faith. This is why we speak of all of life as worship. David gives this model of stirring up your faith as the reason for Israel to hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The negative restraint and the positive calming are how you live the life of faith. This is how God worked with King David. This is how God worked with his people. This is how the Father worked with the incarnate Son for you, Christians here, You can live sanely by faith in King Jesus. How do you calm and quiet your soul? Well, the result is like a weaned child with its mother. Before a child is weaned, it roots incessantly for the breast. If it is not full, it's feeding. Place the child in the mother's arms, and the nudging begins. I remember watching our first child try to latch on through the fabric of my wife's shirt. To be cradled close is to be nursed for that child before it's weaned. I remember our baby rooting up against my shirt. The weaned child no longer roots for the breast. A fussy weaned child will snuggle into the mother's embrace but for the mother's presence. Not for the breast provision. How do you calm and quiet your soul? You make it like a weaned child. You fatten it up with God's foundational provision. And you snuggle it up in his fond presence. Much of the prayer in the book of Psalms looks back to God's great works. Creation, exodus. Deliverance of David and the nation. The psalmist is confronting things he cannot manage. Too great for him. The psalmist psalmist often is confronted by events beyond his understanding. Too marvelous for him. He prays for God to act, not knowing what God will do. His prayer springs from God's past deeds and words. The weaned child Still chubby. He has that softness and glow and pudge from many months of his mother's milk. Our mother's milk are the good things. Strong words. The great accomplishment that God has done and revealed to us. You calm and quiet your soul by filling up so that when God's providence is not satisfying or sensible to you you have plenty you're in a state of chubbing it's not deprivation quite simply this means because you're going to face things too great for you to overcome and too marvelous for you to understand you need to be calm you need to be calmed by the enjoyment of God's great deeds and wonderful words for you. But notice, it's not enough to learn of them. It's not enough to know of them. You must enjoy them. You must draw benefit from them. In fact, this confidence and contentment, this calm and quiet doesn't come from the provision Doesn't come from the chubbiness. The child is calm and quiet when cuddled up on the mother's lap. The the winged child does not climb up there to feed, he climbs up there to be on her lap. He doesn't root, he sits quiet, just tucked in the warm, soft spot of his mother. It is not provision, it is presence. It isn't about anything new. In fact, this is the oldest thing in that child's life. The comfort, the fondness, the nearness. Her presence, her. David is giving you a picture of meditating on, enjoying, taking as your place of calm and comfort. Not the provision, but the presence of the provider. Here is the confidence and contentment that you can have in the wilderness. This is the calm in the middle of that long term intractable problem which you refuse to sinfully solve. This is the quiet for mysteries and conundrums that, that, that tower over your craning neck. You have heard, you have learned. we begin our services with God's word not simply because it is true from the day when it was said when it was written down but because that is who he is here and now we hear his word because he is here calling us to worship it's not the new oh the repeated and the proven, the persuaded. This is why you have favorite hymns and they sing them a thousand times in worship, in the car, doing dishes. This is why you pray about the same ordinary things day after day. Thanks for regular thing, things, requests for daily bread, forgiveness for pedestrian and besetting sins. Because in this, yes, because you know things to be true. You pray this way because God has said this. But because in this, you're sliding yourself into that presence. The way that you get a calm and quiet soul. this is why the Lord Jesus gave us a daily prayer. He wants you to live a sane life in the confidence and contentment of his presence. Christian here, your king has come and conquered. And so he calls you to this confidence and contentment. Remember, he came as your savior He became like you in all things, except for sinfulness. As your substitute, he fulfilled all your obligations and took upon himself all your penalties. He did what only a man could do. The Son of God did not come wearing a man's suit. He did not dawn on a human disguise. The eternal son became a man. Took to himself a real body and a real soul. Oh yes, he read the song. Oh yes. He knew of David. Of David's sin and salvation. And he knew that David was right. King Jesus... Live this life of humility and delight in the Father's presence. Your failure, you're demanding, you're overreaching, you're going in a corner and sitting. Rather be cold than to be there. Your failure does not disqualify you. Like David, part of your humility in service is the service of one who is forgiven. Your sins cast as far as east is from west. That's your status. Like David, part of the light you have in God's presence is his full knowledge and unstinting gentleness and purpose with your sins. The Lord Jesus came to do what you would not and could not and to return you to what the Lord made you for. Your sins, these dispositions, these patterns, this way of how it is I is—I—I fill out my to-do list. This does not disqualify Remember, the way God works with his anointed king is how he works with his people. Jesus lived this way of life for you. And Jesus gives this way of life. Lord Jesus, you lay prostrate in the garden. And for us, you said, not my will, but your will be done. Tears and overwhelmness to death and unflinching. Father, we know his great wisdom that you sent your Son. I ask, Father, that by life among your people, by the hearing of your word, by our coming and going in worship, you would instruct us and persuade us of the glory of our Savior. And that you would train us and grow us and make us like this little song. That we would live humble amongst the grandeur of our God's work for us and that we would live near to you with the tenderness of our God.